Scottish judge Francis Jeffrey was once quoted as saying, A good name is got by many actions and lost by one. My mom preached the same sermon over and over to my brother and I. She said it this way, Boys, it takes a lifetime to gain a good reputation, but only one night to tear it down. Oh, if David had heeded these warnings, if he had listened to his mama, one night of pleasure cost King David, the king of Israel, decades of distress. The nightmare begins in chapter 11. It happened in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle. After being cooped up all winter, all kings needed a good fight, a good battle or two to get the juices flowing again and, and shake the cabin fever. But King David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. David just decided to sit this battle out. David goes on spring break. For 17 years, David has ridden a string of unprecedented military successes. He has had the Midas touch militarily. Every battle his army has fought, he's won. Hey, David has been working hard. Why shouldn't he take a vacation? Why wouldn't he need a little R&R? Oh, relax, Dave. Drop your guard. Chill. Enjoy the fruits of your labor for a change. That's the strategy he took. But then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. The Bible doesn't address why Bathsheba was on the roof of her Jerusalem condo in full view of the king's palace taking a bath in the buff. Obviously, she shares some culpability in what follows. But the truth remains, if David had been doing what God had called him to do, this incident would have never taken place. It's been said, the devil tempts all men, but idle men tempt the devil. We certainly all need downtime, but only to refresh our upward look. It's one thing to take a break. It's another thing to take a break from God. And apparently that's what David did. You can be sure that Satan never takes a vacation. Always be on your guard. And I'm sure David rationalized. Oh my, she is so beautiful. Oh, I wonder if she looks even prettier up close. We can just chit-chat. You know, have a cup of Starbucks. We can just pray together, her and I. As a matter of fact, I can lead her to the Lord. Hey, it's, it may, oh, I think it's God's will that we get together tonight. You see, it wasn't the look that brought David down. It's what took place afterwards. The look was innocent enough. The surge of manly feelings that rushed over him, that was normal. But David failed to control those thoughts and harness those desires. You know, it seems controlling one's thought life is becoming a lost art today. 
We're still moral enough people to frown on certain actions. But we think it's okay to indulge our minds in any fantasy we choose. Hey, God is concerned not just about what we do, but about what we think. In fact, more so is that true. God knows our thoughts will eventually determine our behavior. We need to guard our thoughts. Proverbs 23 verse 7 applies to us all. For as he thinks in his heart, so is he. It's been said promiscuity begins in the head long before it ends in the bed. I heard of a man who worked in an office full of gorgeous women. He said he kept a nail in his pocket. One day a friend asked him, he said, why in the world are you carrying around a nail? And this was his answer. I've learned a lot from a nail. Its head keeps it from going too far. Some of us men need to keep a nail in our pocket. Our head, good thinking, controlling our thoughts will keep us from going too far. It might have helped if David had reached in his pocket and grabbed a nail. But that's not what he grabs. He grabs this woman. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And you can imagine the rationalizations that started spinning through his head. J. Allen Peterson, he writes this. There is nothing wrong with happening to see a beautiful woman bathing. Nothing wrong with recognizing her God-given physical attractiveness and charm. Nothing wrong with an involuntary rapid pulse beat, a surge of red-blooded manhood, an inner whisper, wow. But now the struggle begins. The struggle with his fantasies, his flesh, his faith, and his future. And someone said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? David should have backed off right there. Then David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity, and she returned to her house. David has committed adultery with another man's wife. It is a deed not even the king can undo. Its consequences now are going to haunt him forever. F.B. Meyer, he writes this in his biography on David. He says, One brief spell of passionate indulgence, and then his character blasted irretrievably. His peace vanished. The foundations of his kingdom imperiled. The Lord displeased, and great occasion given to his enemies to blaspheme. One moment of indiscretion can topple a lifetime of achievement. David's momentary fling will shape the rest of his life. And of course, that's not what David thinks. For he assumes that come morning light, all will be forgotten. Life will be back to normal. Verse 5 proves otherwise. And the woman conceived... So she sent and told David and said, I am with child. Now David has a real problem on his hands. And he has a choice he has to make. Will the king cover up or will he confess? Can he admit his sin or will he plot his cover up? You know, I read recently about a new product on the market. It's called Audio Ally. 
Audio Ally. And for $9, you can buy a CD with various background noises. A dentist office, an automobile garage, an airport, nine noises in all. So you can play this CD when you call your employer and tell him that you're not going to come into work that day. The noises substantiate the lie that you tell. Well, boss, I'm fogged in in Chicago. You know, I won't be back until tomorrow while the noise is playing in the background. It's amazing the extremes to which we'll go, to which a proud person will go to cover up their sin. And nowhere is this better illustrated than in the life of David. The king commits adultery, but then he adds to it deception, betrayal, and eventually murder. Here's how despicable David's been. Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, is a soldier on the front lines. He's in combat for the king that has been seducing his wife. When David realizes Uriah is under his command, he sees a possible out. Then David sent to Joab saying, send me Uriah. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah had come to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war prospered. Now, obviously, none of this chit-chat really mattered to David. His concern was not the battle, but this baby in Bathsheba's womb. A child was undeniable proof of his adultery. He had a legitimate child. And the easiest way to solve his problem was to make Uriah think that Bathsheba's baby was his son. And so David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. In other words, sleep with your wife tonight. Sleep in your own bed tonight, Uriah. Cuddle up with your wife tonight. You've been fighting on the front lines. You deserve a break today. So go home and get away. Have a pleasurable night with your wife tonight. And I'm sure Bathsheba did her part. She had been coached what to do and all. When David saw her naked, he couldn't resist. He figures Uriah won't be able to resist either. What he doesn't figure on is Uriah being a better man than he. Nine months later, everyone but he and Bathsheba will think that this baby belongs to Uriah, or that's what his plan. So Uriah departed from the king's house, and a gift of food from the king followed. I mean, David even sends the honeymoon couple room service. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all of the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. So when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, did you not come from a journey? Why did you not go to, man, what's up with you? You're crazy. And Uriah said to David, the ark in Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. What a noble attitude. Uriah is a better man than David. And boy, how his words must have stung the king's conscience. He's basically saying, how can I lay with my foxy wife while the troops are still in foxholes? I'm not going to enjoy the heat of passion while my friends are in the heat of battle. Verse 12 tells us, Then David said to Uriah, 
Wait here today also, and tomorrow I will let you depart. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now when David called him, he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. Now, this is David, the man after God's own heart, trying to compromise Uriah with booze. David's trying to make him, to loosen him up a bit, you know, to make sure he, that he goes down to his wife this night. He's trying to give him plenty of the king's wine to loosen him up and all. And at evening, he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. Even while drunk as a skunk, Uriah still had more integrity than David. Even after he was loaded, he stayed devoted to his troops. Uriah spends a second night with his men, not with Bathsheba. Well, in the morning it happened that David, it's getting serious now, it's getting desperate. He wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah, by his own hand. And he wrote in the letter saying, Set Uriah in the front hand of the hottest battle and retreat from him that he may be struck down and die. He is so calloused. He forces Uriah to hand deliver his own death sentence. And so it was, while Joab besieged the city, that he assigned Uriah to a place where he knew there were valiant men. In other words, the opposition were sharpshooters. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the people of the servants of David fell, and Uriah the Hittite died also. Sad what happens to him. He's in this fierce fight. Everyone around him suddenly withdraws on order but him. He's standing there alone with no support, with no cover. He's toast. He dies in the battle. Then Joab sent and told David all the things concerning the war and charged the messenger saying, When you have finished telling the matters of the war to the king, if it happens that the king's wrath rises and he says to you, Why did you approach so near to the city when you fought? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall. In other words, Joab's admitting that his tactics were very poor battle strategy. David would recognize this. As a matter of fact, there was even a precedent he mentions. Who struck Abimelech, the son of Jerobusheth. Was it not a woman who cast a piece of millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? I mean, that's why you don't get close to the wall. Somebody might throw a millstone on top of you. The death of Abimelech was discussed back in Judges 9. See, Joab is worried that he might get blamed for for military malpractice here. The general's job is to safeguard his troops, to prep his warriors. This is why he tells his servant in advance, When David asks you, why did you go near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Understand the impact David's murder of Uriah had on General Joab. Recall, David had rebuked Joab earlier when he killed Abner. Now the king has done a worse deed. There were reasons to view Abner with suspicion. Uriah, he's nothing but an innocent man. Joab sees the hypocrisy of what David's done. Later, he will lose all respect for David, and I believe the erosion of admiration and honor must have began right here. F.B. Meyer imagines Joab thinking, This master of mine can sing his psalms with the best, but when he wants a piece of dirty work done, he must come to me. Verse 22. 
So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent by him. And the messenger said to David, Surely the men prevailed against us and came out to us in the field. Then we drove them back as far as the entrance of the gate. The archers shot from the wall at your servants, and some of the king's servants are dead. And your servant, Uriah the Hittite, is dead also. Then David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Oh, do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. So encourage him. Oh, in other words, don't worry. Accidents will happen. Oh, every war has its casualties. Outwardly, David is so glib about Uriah's death. Underneath, he's jumping for joy. His plan seems to have worked. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And notice God doesn't call her by name. Notice he doesn't call her Bathsheba. It's the wife of Uriah. God is accentuating the adultery that has occurred. You know, what started out a forbidden look, just a peek through the palm branches, now has ended up in the murder of a good man. And when her mourning was over, how long she mourned, how, you know, she, she did her thing. She wore her black dress and she shed some crocodile tears. How long it all went on, we don't know. But it must have, it must have been quickly. It would have created questions unless a nine month pregnancy had ended if they had just been married, you know, six months or three months. So they must have got on with it very quickly, you know, after the death of Uriah. So David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. And I'm sure David thought that now he can rest easy. The whole sordid mess has been swept under the rug. It's over now. We can move on. We can live life happily ever after. But Uriah is not the only person who fails to cooperate with David's ruse. For the last line rings out. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Boy, you can pull the wool over your own eyes. You can certainly pull the wool over your pastor's eyes and your friend's eyes and your children's eyes. You can pull the wool over even your own spouse's eyes. But you know what? The Lord sees you. You can't fool the Lord. He sees you. He knows what you're doing. Luke 12 verse 2 tells us, There is nothing covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be known. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Now chapter 12 takes place about a year later. Bathsheba is now queen. A baby has been born. David is on the throne But the king is far from a happy camper. For this previous year has been the worst year of his life. His conscience has tormented him. The shame, the guilt for what he's done, the conviction has driven him to the brink of insanity. His secret sin has formed a cloud that has blocked out the rays of light of God's love and God's light in his life. As a matter of fact, David wrote of his experience during this year In Psalm 32, verses 2 and 3, he writes this, When I kept silent, 
My bones grew old, though my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. In verse 1, the Lord deals with David. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan was a prophet of God. Some people believe he authored 2 Samuel. And he came to him and said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich man and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb which he had bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom. And it was like a daughter to him. I mean, this little lamb was more cherished than a, than a household pet. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock, you know, though he had many, many sheep, and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Just took the precious little lamb from the poor man. And while there's plenty of lambs out in his own field. And so David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. This is an atrocity. This is hideous. No such act of avarice and malicious cruelty is going to be excused in my kingdom. The perpetrator will be punished. David's words also prove that he knew his Bible. For in Exodus chapter 22, verse 1, it says, If a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall restore five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. That's why David wanted the man restored fourfold. David knew his Bible, and yet David is proof that just knowing your Bible doesn't guarantee purity of heart. It doesn't guarantee a sincere heart. Just knowing the word doesn't mean that you're walking with God. Verse 7, Then Nathan said to David, and though we're not told this, I picture the prophet seething with righteous anger, suddenly stretching out his long bony finger, all prophets have long, bony fingers. I see him stretching out his long, bony index finger toward the king just before he thunders, You are the man. Can you imagine? You took the you. Took a you lamb from him. You get that? You took the you. And suddenly... The truth cold cocks David in the jaw. It hits him. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight. 
You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Notice God is accusing David of unthankfulness. Thanklessness is his top sin. This is interesting to me. Remember what all David's guilty of now. David is guilty of lust and deceit and greed and pride and even murder. But the sin that God addresses with David first is the sin of ingratitude. David, look at all I've done for you. And how much more I would have done. Why were you not grateful, David? Why did you do this after all I've done for you? Were you not thankful? You know, I believe that behind every sin, there is a spirit of thanklessness. God is so good to us. We thank Him by our obedience. Rebellion, disobedience, unbelief is sheer ingratitude. This is why the best deterrent for sin, the best safeguard to temptation, is a heart overflowing with thanksgiving and gratefulness to God. The more grateful I am to God, the more I want to live a life that pleases Him and shines forth His glory. Well, David's punishment is spelled out in verse 10. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. And never is a very long time. Because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Now this is a heavy penalty. Because David broke up Uriah's family, God is going to break up David's family. His own sons will be at odds with each other and even with their father. According to Exodus 22, in David's own words, the owner of a ewe lamb in the parable, in Nathan's parable, was Uriah. And therefore, because David killed Uriah, he should be repaid. Or because he killed the ewe lamb, you know what I'm talking about. He should be repaid fourfold, right? By following me? It's interesting. Four of David's sons, four, are going to die violent deaths before we're done with his story. The newborn that was David and Bathsheba's, then his oldest son Amnon, then Absalom, and then Adonijah. Four of David's sons die because he took the ewe lamb. He does repay fourfold in the worst kind of way. He loses four of his own sons. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun. In other words, David's wives are going to be violated in broad daylight. Years later, the king's son Absalom will rebel against his father and he will launch a coup d'etat and he will run the king literally out of town. And Absalom, when he comes into town, will assert himself as king and he will be advised by his counselor Ahithophel to, to demonstrate that he's taking over. And the way he does it is by going up on the rooftop of the palace and openly defiling the king's concubines in front of all Israel. 
He sets a roof, a tent on top of the roof, and he does these despicable acts so that people can see. And it's a way of defiling the king and the king's household. Hey, David did his act in secret. Thought he could get away with it. But God in turn will take and he will punish David openly and publicly for everyone to see. Verse 13. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. David had sinned against Bathsheba. He had sinned against Uriah. He had sinned against their family. He had sinned against his own wives and his family. He had sinned against the nation as a whole. But notice what matters most to David. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. His sin has broken the heart of God and he knows it. And he's crushed. I've sinned against the Lord. If you want to read a fuller account of David's confession, and it's certainly worth the reading, his confession is recorded in three Psalms. Psalm 32, Psalm 38, and Psalm 51. I highly recommend you read those Psalms. Now, Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. You know, if we come to God with a repentant heart, God will always forgive our sin. If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin. We can count on that. But what we need to understand is that the forgiveness of sin doesn't guarantee the removal of all of sin's consequences. You know, I've seen people that have come to God repenting profusely, crying, wailing before God, all the time hoping to walk away scot-free. Their desire is not just for forgiveness, but their desire is to shirk responsibility for what they've done. But proof of genuine repentance is a willingness to own my own sin, to take responsibility for its consequences. A repentant attitude says, Lord, please forgive me and help me repair the damage that I've done. Then Nathan departed to his house. The cost of David's sin was the death of his son. Verse 15 tells us, And the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and it became ill. Notice again, he doesn't say Bathsheba, does he? He says Uriah's wife. You see, God's making a point, isn't he? Notice God usually heals. But here God strikes the child with a disease. God is the one who makes him sick. David therefore pleaded with God for the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground And so the elders of his house arose and went to him to raise him up from the ground. But he would not, nor did he eat food with them. David refuses food. He fasts until the fate of his child is decided. He's praying. Perhaps God might show mercy. As long as there's an opportunity to affect the situation, David prays. He wants to pray. You know, he isn't just nonchalantly saying, oh, the Lord's will be done. 
going about his business. No, David believes in the power of prayer. And even though he's told, been told the child will die, he still prays because he believes that prayer changes things, that God honors prayer. And so he prays. And he's going to pray as long as there's a chance. But then on the seventh day, it came to pass that the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. I mean, he had been so emotional before while the child was sick. For they said, indeed, when the child was alive, he spoke to him. We spoke to him and he would not heed our voice. How can we tell him then that the child is dead? He may do some harm. I mean, he may. My, oh, my, what would he do to us? We bring him that news. David has refused food. He has done nothing but pray for the child for six days. He's been fasting and praying. And his servants are afraid that if they tell the king that the child is dead, he'll come unglued, he'll snap, and he might take out his frustrations on them. David mourned the child's death. But notice this. As soon as he's dead, David arises. He changes his clothes. He worships the Lord. He even orders dinner. It's time to move on. Verse 19. When David saw that his servants were whispering, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore, David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, Oh, should we, should we say it? Yes, he's dead. And so David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself, changed his clothes, and went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house. And when he requested, they set food before him, and he ate. And then his servant said to him, What is this that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. David explains his amazing turnaround in verse 22. While the child was alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. Notice David's profound statement of faith. He believes that this young child who dies before him, that this young child is destined for heaven and that David will go to him one day. He will not come to me, but I will go to him. If you've lost a child, And I know some of you have. You need to remember that as much as you want them back right now, they're with Jesus. They're in a far better place. They are in a blissful place. They are in a beautiful place. They are in a bountiful place. And who knows the hardship and pain they were spared by their early departure from this cruel, ugly world. They can't come to you, and you really wouldn't want them to. But one day, you can go to them. And you need to make sure that you've given your life to Jesus so that you will go to them. And don't forget the sweet reunion that you and your child will have one day when you see them in heaven. Verse 24. Then David comforted Bathsheba, his wife. Notice this, other than the initial identification of this woman, this is the first time the biblical writer has actually called her by name, Bathsheba. 
He uses her name now that she has emerged out from under the cloud of sin. Now that the sin's been forgiven, the payment has, you know, the punishment has been rendered. And David went into her and lay with her. And so she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. And now the Lord loved him. And here is amazing grace in action. God chooses to bless this marriage, a marriage born in sin. God chooses to bless it. Isn't that just like our God? An amazingly merciful and gracious God. He blesses this marriage born in sin, and He gives David another son by the same woman that the Lord loves, we're told. Sin does have its consequences. But once dealt with, God can take even a person's sin, even an act of adultery and murder, and He can turn it into good. Isn't that amazing? Now the Lord loved him, and He sent word by the hand of Nathan the prophet, so He called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. And Jedidiah means beloved of the Lord. I would have named one of my sons Jedediah. But Kathy knew that I would shorten it and that I would call him Jed. <laughs> and she thought of the Beverly Hillbillies and she just couldn't do it. And so she stopped it. But I would have called one of my sons Jedediah. Mike, Mac, how would you have liked to be Jedediah? No? Okay. Solomon, or Jedediah, grew up to be David's successor and, of course, the builder of the temple. Verse 26. Now Joab fought against Rabbah of the people of Ammon and took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah and I have taken the city's water supply. Now, therefore, gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it lest I take the city, and it be called after my name. So David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah and fought against it and took it. Then he took their king's crown from his head. Its weight was a talent of gold, and it was set on David's head. Also he brought out the spoil of the city in great abundance. But here's the point. David goes to battle this time. Joab says, I've got the enemy corner. You better get out here and take credit for this or I'll take credit for it. But David, this time, he goes out to battle where a king belongs. No more idleness. No more spring breaks. No more bathing beauties. David is back to the battle. I hope you're back to the battle tonight. If you've tried to take a vacation from God, hey, I hope you realize that you're flirting with danger. I hope you get back to the battle tonight. That's where you belong. Believe it or not, that's where it's safe. Isn't that amazing? David thought he would be much safer in the palace. He was safer in the middle of the battle. That's where we're safer because then we're on our knees. We're trusting in God. We're holding on to Him. And he brought out the people who were in it and put them to work with saws and iron picks and iron axes and made them cross over to the brickworks. And so he did to all the cities of the people of Ammon. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem, where trouble has been brewing at home. Now understand, during his one-night stand with Bathsheba, 
David has some older children who have witnessed their father's mistakes. Bathsheba gate had blown up in their faces. Scandal had riddled the king and his family. And I'm sure the monarch's critics had been picking on his kids as well as the king. You know how the media does. David's sin destroyed the moral underpinnings in his own family. And you begin to see a family gutted of virtue and morality in the sordid story that's recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 13. You know, it was said, David's night of pleasure became a nightmare of pain. Now, to help us in chapter 13, David, understand, had many wives. His palace was filled, as a result of that, with half-brothers and half-sisters running all over the place. Sort of like the Brady Bunch. David was a blended family, and there were problems with his family. The only battle David never won was the battle for his own family. It's amazing. In chapter 13, sort of makes sense when you sort out the the family tree here a bit, David's oldest son, Amnon, was sired through his wife named Ahinoam. Everyone knew that Amnon was the heir to David's throne. But then he had two other children, next two in line. They came by a wife named Maka, and their names were Absalom, and Absalom had a sister, Tamar. Amnon, Absalom, and Tamar, those are the characters in chapter 13. Now after this, Absalom, the son of David, had a lovely sister whose name was Tamar, which means palm. Perhaps it spoke of her long legs and her model's figure. And Amnon, the son of David, loved her. This was an incestuous desire. This was a desire forbidden by the law of Moses. Amnon was so distressed over his sister Tamar that he became sick, for she was a virgin. And it was improper for Amnon to do anything to her. Now Amnon may have made a few passes. Tamar quickly spurned them. And Amnon hated being rebuffed. He was lusting for his sister. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother. Now, Jonadab was a very crafty man. You'll, you'll see he was no friend. And he said to him, why are you, the king's son, becoming thinner day after day? Will you not tell me? And Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. So Jonadab said to him, lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Please let my sister Tamar come and give me food and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. This is an awful plot. Jonadab is sowing seeds of destruction. Then Amnon, following Jonadab's suggestion, lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let Tamar, my sister, come and make a couple of cakes for me in my sight that I may eat from her hand. Amnon has no shame. He involves his own father in his wicked plot. And you know, it seems to me to be an indictment to David that no red flags went up. you think they would have. He's not even suspicious here. He, 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 
To me, it shows the distance between his heart and his kids. And David sent home to Tamar saying, Now go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. David plays right into Amnon's evil hands. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house and he was lying down. Then she took flour and kneaded it, made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and placed them out before him, but he refused to eat. Then Amnon said, have everyone go out from me. And they all went out from him. And by this point, Tamar must have been really suspicious. But remember, she is under orders from the king. David had played right into this. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the bedroom that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes which she had made and brought them to Amnon, her brother, in the bedroom. Now when she had brought them to him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come, lie with me, my sister. And she answered him, No, my brother, do not force me, for no such thing should be done in Israel. Do not do this disgraceful thing. And I, where could I take my shame? And as for you, you would be like one of the fools in Israel. Now therefore speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. And of course, you know, for, for them to marry would have been an incestuous marriage. It was forbidden by the law. But I'm sure that in Tamar's mind, she's just trying to avoid a rape. And so she just pleads to Amnon, Oh, ask David for my hand in marriage. Surely he'll, he'll give it to you. She's just trying to get out of the situation. However, he would not heed her voice and being stronger than she, he forced her and lay with her. She tried her best to resist his advances, but he overpowers her. And here's the irony. Once the deed is done, notice how Amnon treats his sister Tamar. Verse 15 says, Then Amnon hated her exceedingly, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Arise, be gone. Amnon uses Tamar to gratify his sexual appetites, and then he treats her like trash. And girls, that's the attitude of any boy who wants to take away your purity without entering into a marital commitment with you. He pleads, he promises, he pushes, he tells you he loves you until you give in. But once you do, he wants to throw you away like trash. Once you've been conquered, he'll run off to the next challenge and you'll end up nothing but a notch on his belt. If he really loved you, he would be willing to wait until he could marry you. The truth is the boy never loved you. He used you to gratify his lusts. And sadly, Amnon's crime against Tamar gets repeated thousands of times every Friday night. Verse 16 is the cry of a woman who's been shamed by her brother. So she said to him, No, indeed, this evil of sending me away is worse than the other that you did to me. 
but he would not listen to her. I mean, she's expecting some kind of an apology here, something to make amends, do something to restore my dignity. I'm a princess of Israel. But then he called his servant who attended him and said, Here, put this woman out away from me and bolt the door behind her. She was used, now she's spurned. Now she had a robe of many colors, for the king's virgin daughters wore such apparel. And his servant put her out and bolted the door behind her. See, her robe was the equivalent of a, you know, a purity ring that a young lady might wear. A symbol of a young lady's virginity. And then Tamar put ashes on her head and tore her robe of many colors that was on her and laid her hand on her head and went away crying bitterly. And when Tamar's brother Absalom saw this torn robe, he knew exactly what had happened. There was only one reason his sister would have torn her cherished robe. Absalom, her brother, said to her, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? But now, hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this thing to heart. So Tamar remained desolate in her brother Absalom's house. Absalom was trying to console his sister, help her cope with the crime that had been committed against her. But he doesn't follow his own advice, for Absalom takes this thing to heart. Verse 21. But when King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. But I want you to notice, that's all he was. That's all he did, was get angry. There is no record of David ever stepping in and punishing Amnon. No record whatsoever. He got angry, but he never took action. I believe personally that David was so riddled with his own guilt over his own sexual failure that he had a hard time punishing a similar sin in one of his sons. His sin with Bathsheba stripped him of his moral authority to lead his family. You see, these kinds of sins, this kind of unfaithfulness, adultery and things like it, they're long-term reverberating consequences to these sins. Here he doesn't, he can't be the man any longer in his own family. He can't be the moral authority. He's lost that high ground because of his own failure. And when that happens, when the father no longer has the moral high ground, when the father can no longer lead his family in goodness and in truth, here's what happens. Anarchy results. The kids have no one to respect. Anarchy takes place in the home. 